Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, let's open those up to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we're going to be looking at verses 16 to the end of the chapter. Acts 17, 16 to the end. Let's pray together before we get started. Father, we're grateful for the day that you've given us, the opportunity that we have to come before you and sing your praises and uh, lift up our voices and glory uh, to you. And Lord, I pray that you are honored and glorified through all that happens here today, that our hearts are inclined towards you, that we're leaning towards you, that we're pushing aside all the things that the world is um, clouding us with. And I pray that we would be uh, seeing you as, as well as we can uh, on this beautiful fall day. Lord, as we get into your word, I pray that as we see Paul address uh, the people of Athens, that we would take away from this. Um, what you would have for us this morning, that we would see areas in our life which we can uh, clear out so that we would be uh, striving after the kingdom of God and that we would be proclaiming your beautiful name to all those who are lost and dying. And so, Lord, as we go from, from this moment forward, I pray uh, that the Holy Spirit would be here, that he would lead and guide and direct us in this time in your word. Lord, we love you. It's in your son's name that I pray. Amen. All right, Acts 17. Uh, when we began Acts 17 last week, uh, we saw Paul and his team ministering in two cities in Macedonia. We saw him ministering in Thessalonica uh, and in Berea. And in both of those places, we saw a very similar outcome. You've got Paul going into the synagogue. He attempts to reason with the people there in the synagogue from the Scriptures that Jesus is the promised Messiah. And we see that in both of those places, the Lord allows a modicum of uh, success as some people have their eyes open to the truth about who Jesus is, that he was the Messiah that they had been waiting for. Uh, but in both places, a mob of angry Jews rose up and they came after Paul uh, and drives Paul out of both of those cities. And we saw uh, in Berea, as Paul is leaving, because he's the, the prominent person in this, in this group, and so they're trying to drive him out specifically, we see in Berea that Paul leaves Silas and Timothy there for a while as he makes his way to the city of Athens. And this is where we find Paul in verses 16 to 34. Right? And I've told you that this is sort of the culmination of the book of Acts. This is When people think of the book of Acts, this is often the main part that they're thinking of, right? When Paul goes before the people of Athens and he gives this uh, sermon before the people at the Areopagus. And so the reason why this is, is a big deal is that Athens uh, is one of the oldest cities in the world, right? Back in its heyday, it was the foremost Grecian city all the way back until the 5th century B.C., so Athens is a big deal. It's, it's one of the most celebrated cities in all of the ancient world. Right? During the time of the ancient Greeks, it was the center of power, of art, of science, and philosophy. 
Right? So all these big names that when you think of philosophy, when you think of names like Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they all had influence in Athens. Right? And on top of all this, Athens is considered to be the birthplace of democracy. Right? So in Athens, they formed groups and they would vote for the, their leadership. Every person that was in leadership in Athens was voted in uh, by the people. And so we get our understanding of democracy from these people to, to begin with. And it says uh, in one of the commentaries that I read that when Paul arrived in Athens, Athens was considered to be in the late afternoon of her glory. All right, so she's not as prominent at this point uh, in world history as she was before. Uh, Corinth had become the center of commerce and politics in Greece. But even so, Athens was still a very impressive city when Paul was able to visit there. It was considered to be uh, the cultural and intellectual center of the Roman Empire, and it's still, even to this day, a beautiful place to go and visit. So when you think about this, when you think about Paul, if you consider his background, Paul was a highly educated man. He was also very intelligent, right? Peter says some of the stuff that he writes, I mean, I can't understand it. Right? So he's a highly intelligent person, a well-educated person. And so you would think that having Peter go into Athens, or I mean having Paul go into Athens, there would be a lot of things there that would have distracted him. Right? A lot of things there that captured his attention. But the main thing that stuck out to Paul when he arrived in this city was the city's idolatry problem. Read uh, verse 16 along with me. Luke says in verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. And so the, the idols that Paul is seeing throughout the city are images of Roman and Greek gods that have been carved out of anything that the crafters could get their hands on. Right? There would have been anything from stone, marble, brass, silver, gold, or ivory, and these things were everywhere. They were all over the city. Most English translations translate the Greek word that we turn into full of idols or, or something close to that, depending on your translation. Uh, but according to John Stott's commentary on this passage, Luke uses a Greek word here uh, to describe what's going on in Athens, and it's a word that is used nowhere else in the entire New Testament. In fact, it's a word that was used nowhere else in the entire Greek world. So to kind of give us an idea of all the idolatry that's happening here, Luke made up a word. Right? He made up a word that seems to indicate that the entire city was under idols. Right? The city was swamped with idols. So anywhere you looked in this city, you would find it being smothered, literally smothered in idolatry. It was said of Athens that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a human. Right? These things are everywhere. And in the face of such rampant idolatry, Luke says that Paul was deeply distressed at what he saw. Right? This distress that is mentioned by Luke would have been a mixture of both anger and compassion. Right? This is kind of like I said at one point in time that, that Paul often gets sad mad. Right, well, this would be more like mad love. Okay, um, he would be angry because Paul is zealous for the name of God. He wants nothing to stand in the way of people's worship. He wants Yahweh to be the foremost 
and everyone's affection because there's no other God to worship. And there's no other thing created that is worthy of worship. And so there's this intense desire in Paul to see that God is honored the way that He is meant to be honored and these people weren't honoring God at all. Right? And that makes Paul righteously angry. He, he's indignant that God's name is not being honored by these people. But along with that, Paul also would have felt compassion for these people because he realizes that without the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives, they have no chance of worshiping God the way that he's meant to be worshiped. Right? Paul knows that the very default nature of the human heart is to worship anything and everything except God. Like we are inclined to move away from God from birth in our very nature. And when we do this, this is sin. And sin breaks the relationship that we have with God at a foundational level. Right? So when we sin, there's no relationship with God. But we were created for worship. That's why we were made. God made us so that we would worship Him and so that we would bring Him glory. So when we no longer have worship for God in our hearts because of our sin, then we are guaranteed to replace that worship of God with the worship of something else. Guaranteed. John Calvin once said that the human heart is an idol factory. An idol factory. And in our sin, we are just constantly pumping out things that we want to worship that are not God. And usually we can clump these idols into categories. I listed a few of those there. Some, some of us worship the idea of approval or affirmation. Right? Some of us worship success. Some of us worship money or power or pleasure or knowledge. And the list can go on and on. But typically, if you see things that people are pursuing, it's going to fall into a category very similar uh, to this. And they will play out differently depending on whose heart they're coming out of. But we can tell if something has turned into an idol for us, if it's where we turn to provide us with something that only Jesus can give us. Right? We can only find true affirmation or approval through Christ. Right? We, we don't actually have what the world calls success in the eyes of the kingdom of God is adamant failure. Right? We have success when we love God, when we love others, and when we pour ourselves out for the benefit of other people. The world does not define success that way. Right? Money, power, pleasure, knowledge, all of these things, when we pursue after that in a way that does not bring God honor and glory, then we're pursuing after idols. And the problem is, though, that idolatry is deceptive. Right? We almost never see our own personal descent into idolatry. Right? We have, we're really good at seeing everybody else's descent into idolatry, though. Right? We can pick out and point out other people's sin with pinpoint accuracy all the live long day. But when it comes to finding that idolatry in ourselves, we struggle to figure out where we are worshiping things other than God. And Paul knows this. Paul knows that we struggle to see our own idolatry. And he knows that these people are blind to the fact that what they're, actually, what they're worshiping aren't gods at all. 
Then he knows that if no one shares with them the truth about God and the gospel of Jesus Christ, then there is no hope for these people. There is no hope that they're going to come out of the idolatry without the proper worship of God. And so Paul gets to work. Right? Where he could have probably filled up many, many days just exploring the city and, and being enthralled with the beauty that Athens has in it. Paul decides, no, I've got to get to work. And we see that in verses 17 to 21. There it says, So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God, as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also debated with him. Some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you are presenting because what you say sounds strange to us and we want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but hearing, uh, but telling or hearing something new. So we see Paul in these verses begins where he typically begins. He starts in the synagogue. And he does this over and over again because these are the people who have the greatest foundation in the truth. Or we would hope that they do. Right? And so these folks really just need help connecting the, the dots from Old Testament prophecy to the reality that Jesus fulfilled all those Old Testament prophecies. And so Paul goes into the synagogue and he tries to help connect those dots so that they would understand that Jesus is the Messiah that they've been waiting for. Right? And after that, he goes to the marketplace. Right? This is the hub of Athenian culture. Right? This is where people go to, to do business. They sell their stuff there and they shop in the marketplace. This is where people go to hear the latest news in the city. Right, They couldn't turn on the television. They couldn't just pull up Facebook and get all this information. And so they would go to the marketplace and they would gossip about and hear you know, the news of the day uh, for each day. And then they would go there uh, for the artists would go there and they would create. Right? They had these little alcoves in the marketplace and the artists would sit there and paint. And that, I mean, that's just something that they did. Apparently you could do that and make money uh, as an artist in the marketplace just by going to your little corner and painting every day. Uh, this is also where the town officials would go and deliberate. Right? So there, this is town hall. All right? This is where your commissioners are and your mayor would be and all this. That They would meet there. They would debate all this stuff. And they would basically proclaim all that they came up with to the people. And you got to be careful because this is where democracy came in. So if the people don't like it, they just vote you out. Right? And this is also where the philosophers would go and they would proclaim their philosophy. Right? Think a street preacher, but a philosopher. Right? They would go out and yell their philosophy out into the streets. Um, so everything's happening in the marketplace. Right? Luke tells us that every day Paul would go there and engage the people with the gospel. And he tells us that he drew the attention of some of the local philosophers, both the Epicureans and the Stoics. And so uh, the difference between these two is pretty stark. Right? The Epicureans were materialists. Right? They didn't believe really in, in the supernatural. Right? They believed that the body and the soul were both composed of fine matter and that matter would dissolve after death. So there's nothing after this. Right? They believed that there were gods, but those gods were so totally and completely uh, indifferent to all that was happening 
to humanity that they just live for their own pleasure. Like you can't make this God angry because that God doesn't care about you. Right? So there's nothing that you can do to, to either win their favor or to make them angry. All they wanted, all the gods wanted to do was live for their own pleasure. And so they thought, hey, let's be like those gods. And so that's all they did. They lived for their own pleasure, right? Everything they did was, hey, if it feels good, we're going to do that, right? So they sought after this detached life. They're going after comfort and pleasure with as much effort as they can possibly exert. That's all they care about is being comfortable and being pleasured. And, though, and so you have these guys who stand in stark contrast with the Stoics. The Stoics were pantheists. All right, pantheism is where you think that everything has a spark of the divine in it, right? That bug, that rock, that tree, right? Everything, the water, the sky, the sun, everything is part of who God is, right? And so because of that, everything is connected and everything is already determined, right? It, th these are the people who are literally, it is what it is. Have you ever heard somebody say that? Right. These are probably the people that came up with that first. It is what it is. Right. I'm having a bad day. It is what it is. I'm having a great day. It is what it is. You know, like you were meant to have that great day. You were meant to have that bad day. Right. And so you just deal with it. Right. So these folks sought to develop in themselves this self-sufficient contentment so that they couldn't be rattled. Right. everything they process comes through reason. And so nothing makes them feel any specific way, right? And so if you were a Stoic, you were expected to pursue after reason and respond calmly to everything, right? Nothing gets you excited, nothing gets you sad, no matter how good or bad it was. And so you've got uh, Paul is engaging with these people, right? So they've decided to uh, have at uh, a go with Paul. And some of them wanted to know what this ignorant show-off was trying to say, Right? Some other tra translations, you may have one uh, in front of you that calls Paul a babbler. They said, this guy's just babbling on and on about all kinds of nonsense. And the reason why they probably call him a babbler or an ignorant show-off is probably because Paul is approaching the gospel uh, in different ways for different people. All right? So depending on who he's talking to, it, it, it changes how he presents the gospel to them. Right? So when he's in the synagogue, he starts with the Old Testament prophets. When he's talking to somebody who has, knows nothing about the Old Testament, then he begins with creation or some other aspect of their life uh, where he can make a connection so that the gospel can go forward. And so when these people are hearing it, it sounds like a non-coherent message. It's like he's saying one thing to them, he's saying one thing to them. And so with Paul trying to contextualize the gospel... Uh, to make sense with the person that he's talking to, it might sound like somebody who has framed up their mindset in this kind of box and everything has cohesion. When he's coming at it from all these different areas, it might sound like he's babbling. It might sound like he is an ignorant show-off. Right? This guy's just talking. He doesn't know what he's saying. So he has no concept of what he's speaking about, but he wants to seem important, so he's just talking to everybody about it. And so they call him an ignorant show-off. Right? But ultimately, Luke assures us that he's telling the good news about Jesus and about the resurrection. 
So it might seem like he doesn't know what he's talking about, but he's proclaiming the gospel in any way he can. Right? And this interests enough people that they want to hear more about what Paul's teaching, and so they invite him to speak at the Areopagus, uh, which Paul gladly accepts. So in verses 22 to 34, Luke writes this. Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar on which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands. Neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath in all things. From one man, he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of where they live. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then we are God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, we have, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has set a day when he is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him, but others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysus the Aragopagate, a woman named Amaris, and others with them. So the first thing I want to note about this sermon that Paul preaches in the Aragopagus is how he approaches the people that he's speaking to. Right? He shows them respect. He shows them respect and he makes an effort to connect his message to a part of their life that they can relate to. Right? We have already noted several times throughout the book of Acts the flexibility that Paul has uh, when it comes to tailoring the gospel to each of his hearers' lives. Right? Like when he's talking again to the people in the synagogue, Old Testament. When he's talking to the Gentiles, he approaches it from a completely different way. Uh, but one thing that we see here uh, that's not shown in the way that he addresses other people is the countenance that he has when he's addressing them. Right? Paul could have come at this with the, the authority of an apostle. Right? He could be puffed up in his own importance. He could be just so indignant that God's name is being uh, trashed by these people that he could come in and call them dirty, rotten sinners who are bound in idolatry and he could have told them that they were all going to hell. Right? I mean, have you ever heard anybody approach the gospel in this way? Right? That's the way that many Christians choose to approach the gospel. Right? They, they come at it with this mindset that if I don't beat these people down, they'll never submit. So Paul could have gone after that, but you would think that that would work. Might, let me rephrase that, start that with real words. Um, that would go as well as you might expect, right? 
Like, nobody responds well to that. And no one is going to listen to it. Instead, Paul praises them for their religiosity. He says, I see that you are very religious in every respect. All right, so he is taking a reality of their life and he is addressing it with respect. I see that you take this seriously and that you're good at it, right? And this isn't just blowing smoke for the sake of an intro. The people are very religious. They worship all of these idols, right? They're worshiping something, sometimes many things, right? Usually, like a family would take on a patron god of some sort, it would be, you know, if they were a farmer, they would take on the god of farming to worship and pray to. Um, but often there would be multiple gods that these people would pray to and offer sacrifices for. Um, and in their efforts to make sure that these gods are appeased, they would even make shrines to unknown gods. Just in case there was one that we didn't cover with these millions of gods that we have laid out across this city, there are shrines to unknown gods. And knowing that these shrines exist, Paul chooses those as the connecting point where he's going to bring the gospel into their lives. He says, what you worship in ignorance, right? You're saying, hey, to that thing out there that we don't really know, we worship you. He's going to say, I proclaim this to you. And from there, he proceeds to give them five different aspects of the one true God that none of them have yet known. Right? Don't, don't let the length of this sermon fool you. The, the, the speeches that were given at the area of were like three hours long. So what we're getting here is bullet points. Luke has given us a, this is everything that he probably talked about for three hours. And here's five of the bullet points for that. Uh, so in Paul's sermon, he points out that number one, God is the creator. Number two, God is the sustainer of life. Number three, God is the ruler of nations. Number four, God is knowable. And number five, God is the father of humanity. Now, obviously, like I said, he, he expanded on these. And I was talking with Randy last week. Like if, we, if I took all of these and broke them down, we're looking at at least five weeks worth of sermons, maybe six, because I'm sure I probably wouldn't get all of each one in in the time that I usually allot for myself. So he's going deep into this stuff over three hours time probably. Um, and knowing that these people have no knowledge of the Old Testament, he goes back to creation. He starts at the very beginning. And in doing this, he makes a point to emphasize the fact that there's only one God. Notice what he says in verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it. Right? The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. Right? They're worshiping thousands, if not millions of gods. And Paul declares, no, no, there's one. There's only one. And he made everything. He's the creator. And he doesn't live in shrines made by hands. And speaking of hands, he isn't served by human hands. Right? And he doesn't need anything from us because he is the one who gives us life and breath in all things. So he's the sustainer of life. Your heart does not beat because you will it to be so. Your heart beats because God wills it to be so. Right? Your lungs bring in air because God wills it to be so. And so for us to think that we have anything to contribute with everything, that's like me giving my kids money and then they go buy me a Father's Day present. Right? They didn't, they didn't contribute to that. 
I gave them that and they gave it back to me. And anything that we do with our hands and present that to God, that's all we're doing. So he doesn't need any of that. Right? Because he is the sustainer of life. A real God doesn't need anyone to move them around or to present food to them or to offer to build them a house or to bring them trinkets in worship. A real God needs none of these things because a real God is the one who provides the ability for the people to do all those things. Right? If he gives us the ability to do all those things, then why would he need someone to do that for him? All right, so he says, we're not, he, our, the real God is not served by human hands. And from there he goes on to say that God, as the creator and sustainer of life, has made every nation that has ever exist on, existed on the earth. Right? He's determined the time and the place that every single human being that has been born, he has determined the time and the place where they would be. He builds nations. He reduces nations to rubble. He is the one that is in control of all of history and all of the future. Right? And he says the reason why God has put people in the time and place where he does is so that they might seek after him, even though he's not far from any of them. So God is nearby and he's put us in the time and place where we are, when we are, so that we would pursue after him. And I've said often because I love the, the idea that God created you to be who you are when you were born where you were born so that as you come to faith and as you share the gospel God is going to surround you sovereignly with people that you can share your faith with right he's saying that he is not far from any of them and the reason he's not far from any of them is because he he places us around those people in order that we might share our faith, that we might let them know that God is close to them. All right? And by this, by all of this, Paul is saying that God is knowable. All right? He's not the unknown God that the Athenians have put up a shrine to just in case. All right? He's not the unknowable God that they don't know how to worship and so they just throw stuff out there. Hey, maybe this will work, maybe this will work. Just whatever it takes for you not to destroy us because you're mad. Right? God has revealed himself to humanity in a variety of different ways, and he is there for all who will seek him. Right? And after this, Paul connects this knowable, all-powerful creator God to us, indicating that he is the father of all humanity. And therefore, we should not make the mistake of thinking that the divine nature is anything like gold, silver, or stone. Right? They look at these things and they think, there's God. Right? That silver statue, that gold statue, that marble statue, there's God. When in reality, God's nothing like that. If you want to see a far more clear picture of what God is like, then look at the greatest creation that He has put on this earth, and that is humankind. Right? We are created in His image, and that's the reason why we are creative people. That's the reason why we can think and reason and why we understand morality is because we were created in the image of God. And so Luke is saying that Paul has said, you're looking in the wrong place to get this notion of what divinity is like. He said, you should look at us. He is the Father of all humanity. Right? And so... 
with the idea that God is the father of all humanity, he calls everyone to repent. Right? What you're doing is wrong. What you are pursuing is wrong. You are living a life of either you know, pure pursuit of pleasure or pure it is what it is in you know, honor to these gods. And these gods aren't gods. You are committing idolatry. And he calls the people to repent. He says, because the world will be judged in righteousness by the one he has appointed. So there's coming a day. And he's, I mean, he has gone from creation to the second coming of Christ in this time in front of these people in Athens. And he has said, you need to repent because there's coming a day, a day that will come very soon. And when that day comes, there will be judgment. And the one who he has appointed will be the one that brings that judgment. And this is Jesus. This is the Messiah. This is the one who is lifted up above all things, above all these gods that they are pursuing in worship. He's above it all. And He is going to bring judgment to all of creation. And so they need to repent. And to put the exclamation point on it, He says that the resurrection of Christ is the culmination of it all. Right? This is what God has said. Look, this means everything else is true. Right? If he goes into the ground and does not come up from the grave, then it's not true. But the resurrection is the center point of our faith. It shows that everything that God promised in the Old Testament and promises in the New Testament is true is the resurrection of Christ. And when we get to that point in this idea of resurrection, you've got some people there that ridicule him. People don't come back from the dead. Period. So this notion that you have of somebody coming back from the dead disproves everything that you have just said. But others wanted to hear more. Others said, we'll hear from you again about this. And some people didn't even need more convincing. Some came to faith. You've got uh, Dionysus there, the Aragopagate, and a woman named Damaris. All right? And that's how the chapter concludes. So what should we take from this? There, I mean, there's so many, so many things that we could talk about at this point. But the three things that I want to point to specifically is, number one, we need to see what Paul sees and feel what Paul feels. All right, When we go out from this place, we need to be realizing that the people that we're interacting with, it's not the server at the restaurant. It's not the, the checkout person at the grocery store, right? It's not an Uber driver. It's not this, that, or the other thing. Pick your person. But that person is a human being who was created in the image of God. They have a soul, and that soul is going to spend eternity somewhere. All right, so Paul sees people this way. He looks at the city of Athens, and he is dismayed because these people are worshiping gods that aren't God. And so, and that's how we feel what he feels. Like we should be burdened when we see this. We live in an idol factory, right? We have so many things that our heart pursues other than God. And we have so many people around us that are doing that without knowledge of Christ. Right? The church is amazing because we can sort of watch each other's back. Right? If I see you slipping down this 
slippery slope, then I can reach out and grab you or at least try. But there's so many people out in the world who have no one to speak the truth to them, no one that loves them enough to pull them back, to call them to repent. And that's what God has sent us out to do. So we have to see what Paul sees. We have to feel what he feels. And on top of that, we need, this is number two, we need to know the gospel so well that we are prepared to share it with whoever the Lord sends your way. Right? Paul knew the scriptures inside and out. And because of that, he was able to kind of roll with whoever came at him. Right? If it's a Jew, Old Testament. If it's you, what are you worshiping? How can I enter into your life with the gospel? And he was so familiar with the scriptures that he was able to just do that pretty much on command. Now, we might not be quite that flexible in our gospel presentation, but I've told you over and over and over again that God created you to be who you are so that through your pursuits, whatever it is that you like to do, the things that help you connect with other people in the world, you do that and God puts you there so you can connect through that. Right? There's one pastor I listen to. He talks about baseball incessantly. Like, I don't watch baseball. I like baseball, but I don't watch it. I don't know how to turn that into a gospel presentation, but he does it almost every week at his church. Right? So you do you. You do the thing that God has created you to do. Right? Be the athlete. Be the sportsman. You know, be the writer. Be the artist. Be whatever it is. But do those things intentionally, pursuing after the people that God has placed around you. And you've got to know the gospel and able to do that. And then lastly, proclaim the gospel boldly. Right? We see who's going to let me talk to them today is basically the, Paul's method. Right? I'm going in the synagogue. I'm going to start talking. And they're going to do one of two things. They're going to listen or they're going to form a mob and kick me out. Right? After that, I'm going to go to the marketplace. I'm going to talk to anybody who will listen to me. Some of these people are going to think I'm crazy. And that's okay. I'm going to talk to them. Some of them are going to give me an opportunity to speak in front of you know, thousands of people. And I'm just going to proclaim the gospel for everything that it is. And how do you think this is going to go for him? How's it gone in every city that he's been in so far? Right? They're going to chase him out of here with clubs. But is he afraid? No. You give him a platform, he's going to proclaim the gospel from it. And so we have to see what Paul sees, we have to feel what he feels, we have to know what he knows, and we have to be bold with that knowledge. And when we do that, people will come to faith. Some will hate us, some will look at us like, hmm, maybe we should talk about this more, and some will come to faith. And for those that will come to faith, we must do this faithfully. Let's pray together. Father, I'm grateful that this passages in the book of Acts. I'm grateful that we see from creation to second coming, we can have faith in all that you have proclaimed to us. And we get to see that Jesus on the cross and being resurrected from the dead proves that it's all true. Proves that it's all true. And God, it's my desire that we would go from this place with new eyes a new heart, a knowledge of who you are and what you have done for us through Christ and that we would proclaim that boldly as we go and that we would see people coming to faith. We would see people uh, newly persecuting us because we're persistent 
in this uh, sharing. Lord, that we might uh, engage with the people that you've placed in our lives, uh, even to the point where we show them so much respect and honor that even if they disagree with us, they might say, hey, I don't agree with that, but can we talk more about it later? And Lord, that I pray that we would be bold in saying yes. Give us that boldness, Lord. We can't do this without you. We can't change hearts without the work of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask that the Spirit would go before us and that he would do his work so that when we spread these seeds, there would be uh, growth and that many people would come to faith. Lord, I ask all this in your son's precious name. Amen.